And welcome to Gray Matter with Michael Krasny, in-depth interviews with opinion shapers. And this is an interactive as well as an international podcast where we speak weekly with leading newsmakers, authors, scholars, artists, and innovators. We invite you to learn more about us simply by going to our website at graymatter.show. In today's episode, it's my pleasure to welcome three of America's premier documentary filmmakers who have really set the gold standard for historical and cultural filmmaking. Ken Burns, Lynn Novick, and Sarah Botstein. An American icon and an inimitable storyteller who even has a panning and zooming film technique named after him, Ken Burns began his extraordinary career by establishing Florentine Films back in 1976 and showcasing his first major PBS film on the Brooklyn Bridge five years later. Since then, he has produced and directed an extraordinary range of films and has had the good fortune of working with two exceptional women. I used to call them as secret weapons, but the weaponry is out in public now, to put it mildly, Lynn Novick and Sarah Botstein. And uh, they are both, in their own rights, award-winning filmmakers who have worked in collaboration with Ken in directing and producing Many of the much-admired and celebrated PBS films they're famous for, including The War, which is a film about World War II, Jazz, Baseball, College Behind Bars, Hemingway, The Vietnam War, I could go on and on. Uh, both were American Studies majors in college. I found that fascinating because without sounding hyperbolic, I believe it's safe to say that uh, this amazing trio has changed how America sees, understands, and knows itself and its historical and cultural legacies and how it's seen, for that matter, all over the globe. The first episode of their most recent film, the title of which is The U.S. and the Holocaust, is scheduled to air on PBS on September 18th. I want to talk to them about this amazing new work of theirs, as well as their overall approaches to filmmaking. And I also want to say how much I've personally enjoyed being in conversation with them through the years, discussing with them their distinguished and enduring body of work. So I warmly welcome this remarkably talented trinity to this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Welcome to all three of you. Thank you, Michael. It's good to be with you. And good to be with all of you. And Ken, let me begin with you. I'm looking at the first question here that's come in from a listener in L.A., and it was the way I thought I would begin. So uh, we're thinking serendipitous or great minds think alike or a great mind in his case and a lesser mind in mine. But make, you've been making films about America for over 40 years and you've said this may be the most important of them all. And when you think about films of the Civil War and World War II and the Vietnam War, why this film is so important to you? I actually said, Michael, and the distinction is important that I won't work on a more important film. And I would hope that some of the films that you mentioned are, and I'm not the final arbiter of that, are as important. I hope the films that we're working on now could be, and that future films that are not yet born um, could be. But I will not work on a more important project than this. This is, as Guy Stern, one of the witnesses, survivors in our film, says, the nadir of civilization and heretofore Americans have had the luxury, I think, of disassociating themselves from this event, uh, presuming that the ocean and the continental difference and their unknowing uh, gave them that detachment. And it's just not the case. We knew what was going on uh, as it was happening and we uh, failed to act in important ways. It's important to say that we 
brought in more people, 225,000 people than any other sovereign nation, but we could have easily brought in many, many more, even fulfilling just fulfilling the meager uh, quota system, the stingy quota system by bringing in perhaps a million or more people and, and, and we did not. And a lot of that has to do with why our film is called The US and the Holocaust and an understanding of persistent anti-Semitism in the United States and in the world economic dislocation from the depression of fascination and flirtation with the pseudoscience of eugenics and centuries-old embedded racism in the United States, mistreatment and um, murder of native populations, and, and generally, periodically, a nativist anti-immigrant sentiment, all of which is a toxic combination that prevents the United States of America, which often likes to see itself as a nation of immigrants, and is, um, from fulfilling, uh, in this case, what we think was a, just a basic human obligation to save as many people as we could. And all of which highlights, uh, Lenovic, just how much this is um, many films in one. I mean, it's not only a film about the Shoah or the Holocaust, it's also a film, as Ken just touched upon, about how uh, ascendant eugenics theories were. I mean, there were Nazis who even came to the Jim Crow South to learn about apartheid in the South and how they might apply it in Germany and throughout Europe and so forth. Uh, and there's films within this that resonate to our present day about problems of refugees coming into the country and so forth resonate in very major ways. Yeah, well, as we were working on the film, we started thinking about this and committed to doing it back in 2015. And so at that time, we were very passionate about making the film, but we had other projects in the works. So it was sort of on a slow, steady trajectory. And as we were working on it over the last seven years, the echoes and the reverberations and the parallels between what the world went through in the 30s and what was happening all around us in the U.S. and overseas became almost deafening, you know, and um, we saw and we have seen this rise of authoritarianism, resurgence, as Ken was saying, of racism and anti-Semitism and kind of a mainstreaming of bigotry and hate speech, demonization of immigrants, and the threat to our democratic values and kind of what we think does make us an exceptional nation in the best possible way. And so, you know, it's been an interesting project and, and all the films we've worked on, they always are relevant, but this one, it, it became almost overpowering to see at every frame of the film, as Ken always says, the echoes and the raising questions. We hear people talk about, we need to build a wall to keep people out in 1941. We hear that the leaders of Germany, the conservatives wanted to put Hitler in power because they thought they could control him and just, you know, keep the left at bay. And there's just, it's almost too much to even list all the things that made this film seem so relevant. And that's why we are very eager to have it finally air starting on Sunday. Well, it's certainly easy to think uh, in the same context about Saniana. Uh, I'm thinking, of course, Sarah Botstein about, you know, not knowing about the past is perhaps a condemnation or a certainty or near certainty of repeating the past. Uh, it's a, qu a quote that's been often uh, malign manipulated in different ways. But in this case, it really brings home a truth. Um, and you start with the Frank family. Probably the best-known figure in the Holocaust is Anne Frank, because the diary of Anne Frank, I think, has outsold just about any book, maybe with mm -hmm. the exception of the Bible. So uh, there's footage there, but there's also things we didn't know. The Frank family wanted very much to come to the United States and had even contacts and perhaps what a lot of people didn't have that could have made it easier for them to get through this golden door, as one of your survivors calls it early on. 
Yeah. Uh, thank you for asking that question. I think we've been asked a lot in the last few weeks as we've begun to talk about the film, about the decision to include Anne Frank. And as you just said, when we set out to make the film and begun the early research, it came to our attention that Otto Frank, her father, had desperately tried to get to America. And um, he had all the right connections. He knew wealthy people. He knew connected people. He knew pe people connected to the government. He was a, a person who typically would have had the opportunity and the connections to get here, and they didn't get here. And so I think we set off starting to explore the story of Anne Frank. And having made that decision, we then were able to explore her, hear the diary, think about her legacy in ways that I hope is new for an American audience and also for uh, school children. And Ken Burns, um, I remember when the Holocaust Museum was built uh, or before it was built, and I want you to talk, if you would, a bit about the partnership because it had a good deal to do with this film and why over seven years it was in the operation of being made. But I remember there was a lot of controversy. There, was, there were many Americans who said, why have a Holocaust Museum in the United States? This is something echoing what you said earlier about across the pond and over in Europe. This is something that affected Europe, not the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's true. And I think uh, there's no small amount of lingering and as we now know, ascendant anti-Semitism behind those kinds of objections that don't we have enough remembrance of, of the Holocaust? And I don't think you can have too many. Um, we had working on our film, The War, and on a film I worked on with Jeff Ward on The Roosevelts, had scenes about the Holocaust in it. And after the broadcast in 2007 and 2014, respectively, people would come out of the woodwork and ask us what we thought initially were kind of crazy questions. They seemed to represent misinformation or sort of superficial conventional wisdom, conspiracy theories, and, and just kind of opinions masked as sort of legitimate historical inquiry. And we began to think seriously about doing this. And then by 2015, we were approached uh, by a man who worked at the Holocaust Museum talking about an exhibition they were planning called Americans in the Holocaust. And had we ever thought about doing something like that? And we said, yes, of course. And so what we entered into was a kind of a parallel work. Their exhibition came out much before our film and it was wonderful. And, and they directed us towards the archives they had already discovered and towards scholars uh, within and without that they thought were the best scholars in the game. And of course, directed us to to survivors. Um, and I think that they're imprimatur and, and our association has been so beneficial. I, I, I would say in the last year and a half, two years, there's not a day when we haven't had, been in contact with one or more of the scholars that we've worked with. So they're not only on camera or behind the scenes advising, but, but really as we you know, cross every T and dot every I and get ready for a national broadcast uh, where we've, we've used them and their rigorous scholarship. They're also very interested in reaching in, in Holocaust education. So they're, they've been in the business of reaching school kids. And of course, PBS, one of the reasons the three of us have stayed with PBS is because their commitment to educational uh, outreach after the fact and our films, you know, today is a school day in America and our films are shown in hundreds of classrooms today. Uh, 
um, you know, a, a little portion of them. And so PBS is able to reach every classroom in the country. And so we're partnering with them to figure out the appropriate lesson plans to, to teach that. Last night, uh, we had a, um, a, a, a Zoom with 5,000 teachers, 5,000 teachers talking about the educational outreach, which was tremendously exciting and, and working with one of the scholars, Gretchen Skidmore, at the Holocaust Museum. It's been a really beneficial thing. And I, I'll tell you, as you know, in the film business, when you finish editing, you what we call lock the film, which is a kind of promise to your sound editors that you're not going to mess with the length of the film anymore because they're busy opening up the soundtracks from the three or four or five to 50 or 60 or 70. We probably unlocked this film 150 times, usually to take away an adjective or to add a qualifying perhaps or some believed, something like that, that, that didn't sort of put out any kind of thumb on the scale or reflected some new scholarship or a, just a simple mistake that we had made about a date or a, a sex or gender of something. And, and they were very, very helpful in, in kind of holding our hands along the way as we wanted to be corrigible and were throughout. It, it, it's been a, a fabulous association. I want to talk with you about uh, selection of scholars, and uh, you have some great voices in here too, uh, Liam Neeson and Meryl Streep. I mean, you get top drawer kind of talent like that. Even Werner Herzog uh, has a little uh, cameo voice uh, in the film, and uh, that whole selection process I know is fascinating to people. But uh, let me go first uh, back to you, Lenovic. Uh, Ken mentioned FDR, and there's been uh, a lot of controversy about. He talked about FDR in terms of the Roosevelts. <laughs> But you get a lot of more nuanced view, I think, in your film. I just wanted you to sort of address that. Uh, yeah. Roosevelt was maligned uh, by particularly Arthur Morris in a book called Six Million Died for not right. bombing the, the camps uh, or bombing the railroads to the camps. Uh, there was right. a lot of anger. Here we have a lot of villains, but we also have heroic figures like Eleanor Roosevelt, also uh, you know people who went to the south of France, Horace Bingham, and so forth. Uh, Homer Bingham, excuse me. I'm just wondering, was there intention to show this kind of nuanced? Because it's accomplished in many ways. You want to show heroes. You want to show villains. Yes. So just to say thank you for that word, because that is exactly what we try to do: is to find the nuances and not to divide everything into black and white, good and bad. You know pure and <coughs> because it is more complicated than that. And, you know, we've been thinking a lot about Roosevelt and talking a lot about this question. And that, you know, there has been handed down through several generations, particularly of Jewish Americans, a lot of resentment and anger and blaming of Roosevelt. And I think it 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 may be partly because he was such a champion to Jewish Americans. I mean, he was revered because he was openly willing to hire more Jews in his administration and push back against anti-Semitism and bigotry, right? And so- Anti-Semites even said his name was not Roosevelt, it was Rosenberg. Rosenfeld, or right, Rosenfeld, exactly. Yeah. You know, Frank, Franklin D. Rosenfeld and the Jew deal, you know, so so there was a lot of common cause there and, and gratitude to Roosevelt. But then yeah. as this catastrophe unfolded, tremendous frustration and pain and, you know, anguish about the fact that our country didn't do more to rescue and to open our doors. And as Ken was saying, to let in people who needed refuge. And so I, I'm, I, you know, we try to find the nuances to show that, you know, um, as we've been saying, Franklin Roosevelt is not the king. He's not the Fuhrer. He's not, he can't just decide what to do and then just do it. It's a democracy. He has to deal with public opinion. The American public were not at all 
open as a majority of people to letting in more refugees or immigrants. We had passed this really pernicious Immigration Restriction Act in 1924, precisely to cut off immigration from Eastern Europe and Southern Europe. And he understood the will of the people, the dynamics of the country, the way politics works, the levers of power, all of those things. And he also was trying to deal with an isolationist country with a war about to break out and then having broken out, how is he going to get America ready to be involved, to support the allies, et cetera? So we try to show not just nuances of who he is, but also the whole menu of problems that he's dealing with. And, and finally, you know, the scholars that we interviewed helped us to make sense of this as well. Deborah Lipstadt, who's now the ambassador uh, in the State Department to combat anti-Semitism. When we interviewed her, she's just a renowned scholar. And she said, it's too easy to pin it on Roosevelt. That's too simplistic. It's on all of us. And so, you know, we hope that that kind of idea and perspective can, can help us to understand, you know, how to think about his role in all of this. Well, you come away with uh, just a feeling of the apathy and the willful blindness as well as the villainy. And I just wanted to mention uh, there are certainly villains who are centered. Anybody who's done any study of the Holocaust knows that some of the major American icons like Henry Ford and Lindbergh were really Nazi sympathizers and anti-Semites. The word, I, the name I was uh, groping around with was Hiram Bingham, uh, but also Darian Fry, who went to the south of France. And right. there were some extraordinary people. But you walk away from this film, at least I did, you know, with the heartbreak of it and just the number of people who could have been saved, the number of people who could have done unbelievably accomplished things and productive things. And uh, Sarah... It's a heartbreaking story, um, and you know I always like to look for some rays of hope. I think maybe I'd like to have you address that. Where do you? Uh, there's hope certainly in the courage and the valor of uh, certain people and the way they behaved, but at the same time you walk away from this annihilation uh, because that's really what it was, and you wonder where do I find some sprig of hope? Well, that's a beautiful question. I. For me personally, and just listening to Lynn answering the question about FDR and Ken talking about some of the things that became intrigually important to us when we were making the film, I was thinking about looking back, I think there's this need to hold on to something to blame and be angry about and make sense of this event, which is very, very hard to make sense of. And how do you take the facts on the ground that we discovered, take the extremely powerful stories of the people who did get here, the people who helped people get here, the families who were fractured and had the courage to make new lives. And, you know, my grandparents came here thanks to the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society in 1949. And I remember as a child being surrounded by stories from this war and the dedication to moving forward optimistically into the future and building lives and taking opportunity that America presented to not just them, but their friends, to my father, my aunt, my uncle, and to wake up every day optimistic and in doing so to be active participants in a democracy. And I think the apathy that we see around us, the anger, the rancor, the distrust, the fracturing of civic dialogue is the thing that we need to push against ourselves in our local communities, help 
children have the courage to push against in schools and to make sure that our citizens vote because it's really surprising when you look at how few people in this country actually exercise the right and I would say privilege to vote in a democracy. Uh, you learned a lot about you. You learned a lot about your own family, and it's a nice plug about citizenship and exercising franchise. And I thank you for that. Uh, it's good civics, uh, something that I kind of beat on, and uh, maybe was a little bit too didactic uh, through the years. But I'm also inclined to ask you, Sarah, um, not about not only about what you discovered about your own family, because some of this was sort of not necessarily kept from you, but it wasn't in the light, was it? Yeah, you know, I think I'll talk about the, for me, the thing that I learned the most about was actually not members of my own family per se, but the chronology of the Holocaust and really understanding what happened when and where and who was where and who died. And I think many people, if they hear about the Holocaust, they think they know a fair amount about it. And I think what we all discovered in making the film is that we actually don't know as much about the actual history of the persecution and how the Jews died in ways that I think are really, really important to understand not only our response to it, but to push against anything that could be similar to it in the future. So, you know, most Jews died in less than two years in a part of the world we're now hearing a lot about, but we didn't know a lot about a few years ago. And Americans don't think of, I think when they think of the Holocaust, they think about Germany mostly. Um, and- You're talking of Ukraine. Yeah, in, in Nazi-occupied Poland. And they didn't die in gas chambers. They didn't die at Auschwitz. They died in the Shoah by bullets in Point Blank Range in- five, 10, 15, 20 men, women, children, elderly people lined up and just killed in the most horrific ways. And those Jews knew they were gonna die and they left things to remember them by. They fought and pushed against it. They held their heads up high when they went to their deaths. And I think we want to try and honor not just their memories, but their legacy by telling more of the Holocaust and I think all three of us would say than we thought we might do when we set out to make this film. Well, we have lots of uh, people who have questions and I want to go to them shortly here, but you mentioned children. Sarah mentioned children. Ken, I'm going to go back to you if I may. Uh, I was thinking about the Wagner, Wagner Roberts Act as opposed to what happened in the UK. I mean, just as a historical sense sure. of shock. So Britain and a kind of gesture of goodwill said that they would take in 5,000, 10,000 kids in what we call the kinder transport, obviously without their parents, uh, which raises a, a very big specter of family separation. And we now know because of what's taken place on our southern border, the traumas and the lasting traumas associated with those kinds of things. But um, there was a an act introduced by Robert Wagner, the Democratic Senator from New York, and Elizabeth uh, Edith North Rogers, a Democratic, uh, a Republican Congresswoman from Massachusetts, to let in 20,000 Jewish kids to forget about the quotas and to 10,000 each year, 39 and 40. And the response was so overwhelmingly negative uh, among patriotic groups, daughters of the American Revolution, et cetera, et cetera, among congressional people, among the media, 
among ordinary people, really horrible things were said about it. And in the end, the bill was sort of quietly withdrawn. Eleanor Roosevelt had supported it. The president supported it behind the scenes, but didn't say anything publicly because I think he understood exactly the political calculus involved that had it really gone to a vote, it probably would have been not just killed with amendments, but those amendments would have in fact done something that had it did not happen, um, which was that the the um, the immigration law of 1924 would have been strengthened. That the that you know quotas might have been eliminated altogether, or that certainly they made smaller. And so there's, it was just withdrawn because of the fear. So we could not even let in 20,000, which, as Nell Painter, the historian, said, seems so unbelievably cruel. Uh, and in retrospect, of course, it is. But very much part of this political reality that we've been talking about that we have to have a reckoning about. We have to own in a way that we haven't really wanted to. And, and our exceptionalism is, is interesting because usually when you find an artist or an athlete or scholar that's exceptional, they there's a great deal of rigorous self-discipline and self-criticism, and it, it hasn't happened. That kind of rigorous self-examination has taken place by the Germans over the last several decades. But the Americans blithely go forward, convinced of our exceptionalism, but unwilling uh, now, even more so today, unwilling to examine these places where the shadows might linger, where there could be information that could be disturbing. But in fact, the way you remain and stay exceptional is to embrace and understand those d disturbing aspects. That's really one of the most horrible moments of our our behavior. It's it's not the only one. It's not the worst. But it's there's something really terrible about saying, no, 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 you can't let into the United States, this gigantic, huge, rich country, 20,000 Jewish kids to save them from perishing in the Holocaust. There's also, uh, unfortunately, what comes to mind, the fact that um, not only, well, children aren't able to get across the border from Central America, you think of those thousands, and the argument comes up, well, what about sustainability? You hear many of these arguments, but this is a vast country, and there is a need for a lot of people in this country, uh, especially in certain places of great expanse. I'm not you know, making I a brief here. Yeah. I made a film in the mid-80s on the Statue of Liberty, and the poet Andre Kordeski says, you know, um, there's room for people. He said you could have uh, 100 Pakistani restaurants between New York, uh, between Washington and Baltimore, you know, and there was, it, he was just trying to remind us that the way in which these things get manipulated and abstract in a political thing, the way we find it so easy to blame the other or to make an other of somebody who is just us. And I, th I think one of the themes of this film is that, you know, just as eugenics is, as we describe it, a fiction, you cannot make a hierarchy of race or ethnicity. Um, there's one race, the human race, and that we're all in this together. And when people tell you there's a them, you need to run away because there's no them. There's only us. And the great fail, I mean, this film is the U.S., capital U, capital S, but it's really us and the Holocaust, too. And the American people deserve to take a look at it. We're, we, we're obligated to take a look and see the way in which we failed. At the same time, as you pointed out, Michael, there's lots of places that we didn't fail. And of course, uh, we 
particularly us and our manufacturing capabilities and Russian sacrifice and, and our own sacrifice with our allies on the Western part of Europe, uh, and of course in the Pacific, um, made the difference, ended this, saved the remaining surviving uh, Jews of Europe, which were, you know, which their goal was to eliminate all 9 million. But we still didn't do enough when it was possible to help. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why we made this film, not to chastise, not to excoriate, but to just own. And, and you know, we as filmmakers felt we had to own it before we can share the story. Again, I just want to remind uh, everyone that we're talking with Ken Burns and with uh, Lynn Novick and Sarah Botstein about their film, The U.S. and the Holocaust. Uh, you can see it beginning on September 18th, and uh, I hope you will. There's also, of course, uh, an importance in this film just with all of the uh, Holocaust denial that is still a part of, unfortunately, American pop culture and all the lies that are spread on the Internet and the sorts of things that we're all dealing with in this new era of ours. Uh, let me go to some questions that are coming in here. In fact, um, I was thinking about how important it is to document these things, which is something that uh, these three extraordinary filmmakers have done diligently and fastidiously all these years. And one of our uh, participants uh, up in Seattle wants to know any tips for a first-time documentary filmmaker. Um, I, I mean, I, I know you've probably asked that question time and time again, but I would think that one of the first things that comes to mind is just getting it right and getting it accurate and getting it, you know, so that people can find how credible and important, especially when you're talking about the dwindling numbers of survivors telling the story, That's whatever right. the story yeah. is, yeah. Whatever the story is, I, I think that's right, Michael. You know, the, the biggest thing is you got to decide whether your film is going to advocate for a particular point of view, which we don't try to do, or just tell a kind of story, call balls and strikes, and and try to organize this into a complex, nuanced, you might say, uh, narrative. Uh, and so, listening and being willing to um, correct yourself. I mean, we, uh, Jeff Ward is a, a phenomenal writer. We've worked with, I've worked with him for 40 years and our, our scripts from him undergo many, many drafts and revisions as, as we find out new information, as we correct information that's there, that we edit the story or add new stories as, as it may seem fit or clarify something in another way. And so just the willingness to be able to be self-disciplined enough to, to be corrigible throughout the process. Most people have a process of re, uh, a period of research followed by writing, followed by shooting, followed by editing. We never stop researching and we never stop writing and we never stop even discovering archives and, and replacing things at the very end, something in the introduction. I switched to shot out, you know, after we'd locked the film and it, it just, it, it, it worked out uh, uh, fairly well, but it's, that's it. Listening. Being, being good, a good listener and persevering. This is nothing, nothing will be delivered, particularly in documentary film. You have to sort of have that kind of willingness to um, work really hard. I, I, I don't know uh, very many people who work harder than the three of us do. Haven't you had a feeling from time to time when you've locked something up, gee, I wish I had done that differently or I wish I could go back? I mean, novelists have told me this through the years about, you know, some of the greatest novels. Faulkner thought he never got the Son of the Fury right. He had to go back 17 years later and write another appendix. Uh, you know, 
I've looked at films and I would see that I might now do them differently, but like a photo in a photo album, you know, just because you were wearing that wide lapel paisley shirt in the 1970s doesn't mean you go, God, I wouldn't be caught dead in that and rip it up. You go, no, that's who I was. And so my first film, Brooklyn Bridge, I think it fades to black too many times. It sounds like in the weeds, but I would probably have eliminated those, but there's nothing wrong with that film. It is what it is. It, it, it does what it's supposed to do. And so I would never touch it in a million, million years. I, I just like the idea that that Jeff Ward always says that, that, you know, there's no definitive history, that history is a conversation. And somebody will come along in 10 years or 15 years or 50 years and make another film on the Holocaust that is informed by new scholarship that we've discovered or new perspectives that we hadn't anticipated could be seen from and, and that that will do something else. So I, I think that in some ways, you know, I mean, what 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 Faulkner is acknowledging is that, you know, you'd never finish anything. You abandon it. Right. At some point you abandon a work of art is what painters often say. You know, you just get to a place where, sure, you can keep fiddling, but, you know, there will be nothing there. At the you got to lock it up <laughs> at, some, at some point. You got to lock the film. Here's Jeremy from the San Francisco Bay Area who wants to know, with you and your team having created some of the most renowned productions in the history of the world, can you please describe how important team is and how you create? And maybe, Lynn or Sarah, could I go to one of you on that since you're uh, sort of the fledgling members of this team? <laughs> fledgling, well, I'm not sure about fledgling. <laughs> Lynn, Lynn, Lynn and I have been working compared, together yeah. for, for, for more than 30 years. years. Yeah, yeah 30, 33 yeah, years. Ken yeah, goes back but, to, um, to, what, 40? Yeah. 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 So yeah. That, you'll always yeah. be fledgling. Yeah. You know, um, I was talking to someone, we were at a meeting this morning, and I was talking to someone about whether they can get their teams at their office back to the office. And, right, and so... You know, the the COVID experience for us, where we had to immediately, like everybody else who could, it wasn't an essential worker, you know, work from home. And we weren't in the same place with not just the three of us, but with Jeff, our writer, with our editors, our producers, everybody scattered, obviously. And we've slowly, you know, been coming back. But we've, you know, it's it's a loss of a kind of collaboration that's in real time, in the real place. And it just brought up what we love about working together is being together and sharing ideas and trying, you know, having what we now call a safe space where you are not afraid to say something. And we often, I will often say, this is probably a terrible idea, but I'm going to put it out there. And then maybe Ken will say, no, no, it's a good idea. Or maybe, yeah, you're right. It's a terrible idea, but it's okay. And, you know, there's, that is a very special, I think kind of unusual environment where there's room for creativity, room to make mistakes, room to be wrong. And a lot of trust, obviously. A lot of trust. No yelling. No yelling. No yelling, absolutely, which is wonderful. But how do you do the basic division of labor? That's that's really Yeah, so but what I was going to say is the reason why it works, I think, is because we all have one goal, which is to make the best film. And so it really puts your ego out of the way in that it doesn't matter whose idea it is. It doesn't matter if you're right or wrong. And we have a way intuitively to recognize when something is what we call working. When it's working, it's working. Can't always explain why, but so, so that you know that is that takes um, time to develop and having the right people in the room. But when the know, horns are really locked, what then? I mean, when you really are at an impasse. <laughs> yeah, we you know we'll go to the mat. I mean, seriously, we've had some pretty seriously intense disagreements, and you know then we sleep on it too sometimes and come back tomorrow or the next week or even six months later and say, you know what, 
that was, you know, whatever that thing we didn't try before, we're going to try it now, or you're right, that was wrong. I mean, I think we all recognize it. It works out because we can all tell what makes the best film. Well, let me get Over, back to that it, question long though, process. about yeah. divisional labor. Sarah, you want to handle that maybe? Sure. I think there are two ways to think about how we divide up, not so much amongst the three of us, but in terms of our team and the collaboration of doing this work. One thing that we do, we do the same for every subject, regardless of you know what kind of archives we're going to, but we have producers and researchers who become totally expert in still photographs those who become really expert in moving imagery, if you're talking about the 20th century and there's newsreel footage, those of us who really get deeply into the weeds about music, not just to listen to it, but then how to license it and use it, which is boringly complicated, but really important. And then for a film like this about newspaper coverage, documents, visas, this we were using some new archival material in this film in a way. And so that, again, to Lynn's point, is really, I use the metaphor of a crew boat. We're in a boat rowing, and we all have to be kind of talking to each other and rowing together and learning together and teaching each other so that we can work with our editors and be in the extraordinary, both safe place that Lynn was just talking about, which is the editing room, where we really struggle to get the film visually, orally, factually accurate. And then I'll just tell a story um, we filmed an interview at the height of the pandemic when vaccines had just happened. And so it was a sort of a new way of working for us. It was a tiny, tiny crew. We had to do a COVID test. We were masked. We were in a location we didn't know. We were screaming at each other six feet apart. We were trying to set up the shot in a safe way. And we were working with a crew that we were all from different countries. None of us had met each other. And the person we were interviewing, who was a writer said to me, I don't remember the last time I was in a room where everybody literally needed each other to get the job done. You could, one of us couldn't do the job without the other. And it's like a beautiful moment of both technical collaboration, but artistic collaboration and intellectual rigor that is extraordinarily special. And I feel, I love the fact that the job I do, I cannot do alone. Well, I'm wondering, you know, when I uh, probably uh, thick-headedly use that word fledgling, uh, Lynn, let me go back to you. Well, I mean, Ken Burns I has Ken Burns has the name, you know, and it's a name that has almost become immortal in many people's minds. Uh, so I described him as the inimitable storyteller and all that sort of thing. And I know the roles that both of you play, and it's significant, and he has been always... Uh, at the height of grace in terms of acknowledging and recognizing the importance that both of you have played and so forth. Absolutely. But uh, what about that sense of, you know, so much association with his name? It's a, it's an honor to be associated with Ken Burns, honestly. So uh, that's, you know, I... It doesn't never very, overshadows or do you never feel it overshadowing or taking away from... I feel hmm. very grateful, seriously, that I've had the privilege of working with Ken for all these years. And, you know, I was a fledgling once and... You know, I came to work for Ken when I had had maybe four or five years of experience. I'd been an associate producer. I helped clear the picture rights on the Civil War out of, you know, that's when I came on. And then Ken, I was sort of not sure what I would do next. And I, I told Ken I was looking for a job. And he said, no, you can't leave. You have to produce my next project, which is baseball. I knew nothing about baseball. I had never produced a series. And I just, my initial reaction was, I can't do that. And you'll have to ask him why he thought I could. 
But, you know, that was a not just a vote of confidence, but a pushed me into the deep end of the pool in such a such a gift for the whole rest of my life. I will cry if I talk about it too much. I'm so grateful that that moment changed my whole life. And so I don't know what else I can say. I mean, I. Well, let me ask Ken, why all the confidence in Lynn at that stage who knew nothing about baseball? I mean, you were taking a pretty big chance, weren't you? No, I don't think so. I think that, um, you know, the the process that Sarah was describing of of producers and editors might give the false impression that you're talking about dozens of people. This mm-hmm. film legitimately thanks hundreds of people in the ending credit, but it's really handmade mm-hmm. by less than 20 people mm-hmm. that are intimately involved in this. And, and that includes the editor and the assistant editor and the apprentice editors. It includes the associate producers along with the producers. So it's a very, very intensely intimate thing. And what happens in the process of doing that, where you have not had a a strict delineation of labor so that everybody's in their own narrow groove, people carry multiple portfolios. And that's a really important thing to do. You don't get stuck. You don't get involved in that. And what happens is, is that the the thing that's most important is character. And you, you see that right away. You understand who's the workhorse, who's the show horse. It was instantly evident from Lynn's brief uh, attention to things at the very end of the Civil War process, that she was just ready. And, and, and what she was surprised only in that the the suggested marketplace would have required her a more or a, a more attenuated apprenticeship, right? And yeah. it it seemed like you know why let's <laughs> it's, it wasn't it wasn't any kind of you know benevolent or paternal thing like throw her in the deep end as she suggested. It was just like <laughs> of course she can do this. Let's just do this, and we'll deal with whatever anxieties we have. I mean, I have never ended my anxiety about anything I've done. I mean, it used to wake me up all the time. I still think it's true for all of us. Sometimes some film projects, because I don't have a Lynn or a Sarah, I have to do every one of the interviews. Some projects like this one, I don't have to do interviews because I have two good interviewers. You know, a film that I just did on, on Benjamin Franklin, I did all but one of the interviews and that's fine. And it, it just was what was required. So I think we've, we've learned how to, to, to do that. And, that, and then what happens in the editing room is we you become fiercely involved in the ideas of it, but that's what it is. It's just the ideas of it and making a film better. And, and all of us want to, at the end of the day, just have felt like we've, boy, we made that better. And that sometimes requires waking up and going, oh my God, what a stupid idea that was. Yeah, but you in know, the meantime, we, your passion is driving you, your anxiety is driving you, you've got all yeah. of these things that are you know keeping you nose you know, to the wheel. A, there's a razor's edge to that. There should be a terror of the moment, you know? There well, should be. You and, me... and, and, and it's not that you enforce through belligerence or belittling or any of this, you know, the workplace. What did Lynn, you just said about safe space, right? I mean, it's safe, right? The, you know, I, I think in, in 45 years of doing this, we've only had a couple of instances where we had to really say to somebody, really, do you think you fit in here? You know, because yeah. you just weren't the right stuff, but it, it's safe. But at the same time, then that safety requires the kind of risk taking that um, the rigor 
the the scholarly rigor that that um, Sarah was describing a second ago can can take. What you're talking about really resonates in so many ways about uh, what you have to bring to work as a team and what makes for a successful team and all that. But all these emotions notwithstanding, I can't help but ask. I'm thinking about something Elie Wiesel once said uh, about you look into the flames long enough and you get burned. Um, and there's always that danger, especially with a film like the one you just made. You know, uh, I think you understand what Wiesel was saying, don't you? Of course, of course. And I think we're very careful to calibrate what we call the war pornography or the Holocaust pornography, this sort of desire to throw at you. You know, when you see a finished film of six and a half hours as this is, there's 40 times the material we've got that we've looked at. And a lot of it is a lot worse than this. And I think people would be tendency to sort of throw the the most dramatic, but that, that can be counterproductive. It, it can have a kind of desensitizing in the way the six million figure means nothing anymore, just nothing. It has zero meaning. Um, you have to figure out new ways of of doing the arithmetic and and you have to find new ways of telling the story. In fact, the whole um, story of existence at, at Auschwitz is done almost entirely with modern live cinematography uh, taken by a Polish film crew we never met uh, who went to Auschwitz in the middle of COVID and, and filmed it and then narrated by a survivor that we had to fly to London to interview. I mean, it, it's just, um, it was better, less, less is sometimes more. And so the thing that we're supposed to do is actually look into the flame and, and then try not to get burned, but to make sure our audience isn't in some way, shape or form uh, burned by association. We just have to completely uh, liberate them from the tyrannies of, of, of these superficial tropes of, of violence and gore and horrendous or hyperbole. Um, you know, it's it's a really fine line that you, that you have to run, but but we all appreciate. It. I remember when we were all making the war. I went into the editing room, and my editor looked like hell, looked like hell. And I said, "Paul, you look terrible." And he said, "So do you." And I said, "What happened?" He goes, "I got no sleep. I was dreaming." And and uh, and I said, "Where?" And he said, "Bulge." meaning Battle of the Bulge. And he said, what about you? And I said, Peleliu, which is a speck of land in the middle of the Pacific that had a Japanese garrison that we didn't need to stop. We could have passed by. And instead we, as, as one of the participants said, it was like two scorpions in a bottle and we just murdered each other for you know way too long and lost way too many people on both sides. And our, the footage from there is pretty ghastly. And we, you know, mm-hmm. We were living it, so that may be a place where you get burned. But you know, you shake it off. That this is not a fun film to make in that way. But there's an exhilaration that comes from the rigor that Sarah was describing. Oh, that's nicely put. And also, I think, isn't it, uh, Lynn, the idea that you have to tell these personal stories in addition, because as Ken yeah. said, the number six million, you can't even get your head around. Right. Right? Yeah, you know, speaking for myself, when I these these moments in history, even it is abstract. Even when you've read about it, you've seen the horrible pictures, you've thought about it. It, it there's a moment in every film for me when it becomes real that I, I begin to emotionally and kind of and in some deep inner way get like somehow touch what happened. 
And that's when a person who lived through it for the most part describes their experience. And it doesn't happen all the time. It's very rare where you really, it's, you know, you're you're magically teleported to the to the moment they're describing through their own bearing witness and they're reliving it for you. And it's real to them. And they're not just telling you what it felt like. They're feeling that thing again that they felt before. And, you know, we've gone to some, as Ken was speaking, I was thinking about all the dark places we've gone in many of the films we've made, the Holocaust for sure, but we've also seen horrendous tragedy and, and terrible suffering in other conflicts, Vietnam War and, and World War II and, and other Baseball and jazz, bad stuff happening. Right. And so that's the human condition. And that's what we're interested in is how, as Sarah was saying, we sort of make meaning out of this grief and loss and find a way forward. But it, I guess it's paradoxically a privilege to have that feeling when someone shares it with me or us rather, and then to share it with the world for us and for the people who have been involved. So you know, it's very validating and meaningful to them. And that that gives us enormous joy and satisfaction, actually, because we've asked people to share extraordinarily painful and difficult experiences and memories and feelings. And we always worry a little bit, you know, did we make their suffering from then worse, sort of re-traumatizing them, as we would now say. And sometimes that's the case. Sometimes it's cathartic for them and then for us. But when the films come out and the response happens, and the world sort of touches the past through their bearing witness. Such a powerful thing. It's such a gift to be part of that. Um, so that I think that helps us get through, you know, the the, the sort of whatever s- difficulties we have with this material. It's a very profound experience. We go to some more of our questions, and I'll go to you if I may, Sarah. Uh, this is Brody who wants to know. Several European and Asian diplomats took extraordinary risks to help Jews and others escape Nazi persecution. In researching your upcoming documentary, did you find similar examples among American diplomats? Yes, I think we found um, many examples of Americans who worked within the government. And Ken was talking about this this morning at a breakfast we had. I think we 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 know a lot about individuals, Varian Fry, Hiram Bingham, the people that the the uh, you just brought up in your question, individuals from different embassies, countries, dipl- um, bureaucrats who helped, but also there were NGOs as we would call them now, as Ken says, that were helping. So those organizations were staffed with individuals working very, very hard all the time from early, early on in this process to help get people out. And I think we were talking at an event we did with the US Holocaust Memorial Museum last week and the scholar Danny Green talked on stage about he one of the legacies for him is what inspires individuals to take action as things are happening not looking back and thinking about how everybody didn't take action but who who does take action when a crisis is unfolding in front of you what is it in the human capacity to reach out and take in a foster child, sponsor a refugee, forge a legal document, make a stamp, take children through the middle of the night, hide people in your farmhouse. What is that? And I think those individuals that we don't hear about and know about just walk at Yad Vashem through the trees with the righteous Gentiles and think about their individual acts of heroism. I think we don't we don't celebrate that enough. 
in the same ways, I don't think we, we've had a lot of conversations about the tension in our country about whether we should or should not be a land of immigrants and whether or not these racist, nativist, xenophobic, anti-Semitic um, forces will continue to be upon us rather than the to celebrate the enormous contributions of immigrant groups at every stage of our history. So I think looking at the heroic people who helped get people out is a good way to think about history with a positive lens rather than always a negative one. So um, I've been thinking a lot about Danny Green's point about that. So I really appreciate the question. And appreciate the answer. Thank you for the question. Uh, and another question from uh, Robert in Los Angeles. Thank you for this, Robert. Uh, Ken, let me go to you with this. Why was it important to release the U.S. and the Holocaust earlier than its originally planned release date? Yeah, well, I think we've sort of been dancing around this, uh, Michael, for most of our conversation. Um, you know, Mark Twain is supposed to have said that history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. And if he did say that, that's wonderful because there hasn't been a film that we've made that doesn't rhyme in some way in the present. And we knew, of course, in every film that we're working on that it will do that. And it is our discipline, self-discipline as filmmakers to sort of be kind of conscious of that, but to be attend to the story that we're trying to tell, to not put signs and labels saying, oh, isn't this so much like today? As we were working on this film, it became very clear that where every 10 sentences were rhyming, now every other sentence was rhyming. And it became incumbent upon us because of our initial mounting of the story, the, the table setting that takes place with the things that we've talked about of nativism and anti-Semitism and racism and eugenics and uh, all, all of the stuff that, that, that we sort of set the table with, that it was really important for us to dismount in that way and bring us up as we do in the last couple minutes of a six and a half hour film uh, with sort of things that are going on that echo with the things we've been talking about that resonate that rhyme if Twain actually said that. And when we, after January 6th, I began to have a really nagging feeling that there was an urgency to what was going on, that the three great crises in American history had not staggered us in a way that this more silent uh, crisis that was taking place in COVID, but also in the, in the erosion of, of institutions was, was staggering us in a way that seemed to me very profound, having studied not just the Civil War, but the Depression and the Second World War extensively in my professional life, as well as in my personal reading interests. And so I began to suggest to Sarah and Lynn that we might accelerate the broadcast from 2023 next year, maybe even next fall, uh, to this fall, only so that we could get this film into the conversation. Um, they were reluctant initially, but I think now in retrospect, and they worked so hard and our team worked so hard to make these impossible kinds of things. We didn't grip on the film in any way. We don't think the film in any way suffered from that uh, acceleration. But it was important, Deborah Lipsight says in the film, the great Holocaust scholar says, you know, the time to stop a genocide is before it happens. And I would just add, the time to save a democracy is before it's lost. And I think that there are so many stories of this story that resonate so many hundreds, if not thousands, that resonate with what's going on now, that it is our obligation, not as documentary filmmakers, 
advocating for a particular point of view, but for people who love our country, realizing that it is in a great deal of peril. And as the saying goes, now is the time for all good people to come to the aid of their country. Is there, uh, let me go to you on this, Lynn, and then I want to find out also how you select, I mean, it's easy to select someone like Deborah Lipstadt because she's so prominent, but select some of the historians you do and the actors, and I promised I would get to that, so I definitely want to, but something that Ken just raised, is there sometimes this razor's edge, uh, I use a phrase he used before, where you're trying to be the journalists and the historians and the filmmakers, but you feel you want to be a polemicist and it's hard maybe to avoid the polemics? Yeah, we, we don't, we really, we, it's not hard for us to avoid polemics. We, 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 we're not looking for that at all. And we feel really strongly and Ken always says this, that we can, you know, gently share the story with people and they can make up their own minds. And we give our audience the credit that they will be able to do that if they're not being yelled at or, you know, browbeaten or whatever other words we want to use. You know, that being said, this is a, this is, this film is, contains, as Ken was just saying, some very challenging material um, that, and, and echoes of today that we, we feel are urgently needing, we need to confront, but we don't have to come, we don't have to have someone come on camera and explain all that. It, no, but you could obvious. do it more subtly. I mean, you're thinking it's, probably of Charlottesville exactly. and that sort of thing, aren't you? Right. So, you know, Charlottesville happened while we were working on this film. And for any of your listeners who don't know, Charlottesville was a, a, what they called Unite the Right Rally in 2017. It was organized to protest the taking down of a statue of Robert E. Lee. And all kinds of people showed up there. And one of the chants that they said was, Jews will not replace us. You will not replace us. And as Ken was talking about earlier, the, the 1924 Immigration Act that was to restrict uh, immigration from places where a lot of Jews were coming from, that was the fear then that Jews and other undesirables, so to speak, would come to America and replace the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who thought they had more of a right to be here. And so, you know, this is not a new idea. And I think that's what we've been seeing is that some of these ideas, some of this really hate-filled, bigoted, racist, anti-Semitic, xenophobic ideology didn't go away. It it was present in our country at the turn of the last century or 1900 to, to now. So, you know, we, we, we felt we had to include some of the recent manifestations so that the whole story we were telling would, you know, people could connect the dots themselves. And that's the key word that Lynn is using is story, right? Because arguments don't do anything, but story does. Story has the ability to do something. And if you can sit on your hands and and try not to polemicize, you have more of an opportunity of reaching people and changing people. Because, you know, as, as Richard Powers, a novelist, said, you know, the best arguments in the world won't change a single person's point of view. The only thing that will do that is a good story. And we're just dedicated to trying to figure out what a good story is. And as Jeff always reminds us, as you said earlier, that history can also be a conversation. A conversation, yeah. History is also, I always think of James Joyce, uh, Stephen Dedalus, a nightmare from which we're all kind of trying to escape. Yeah. I mean, those words uh, continue to resonate in my mind when I saw the U.S. and the Holocaust. And uh, in fact, here's a question sort of dovetails in a way from a uh, listener up in Washington who says, with the mountains of media on some of these subjects to choose from and the amount of time these projects have to process all of it into a film, at what point might you worry about your artistic pen maybe conflicting with your goals as documentarians? Well, you know, that's the that's that's our job, right? That's our <laughs> job is to watch 
the, you know, the artistic pen, we could say, would be these formal aspects and the, the, the accuracy of the history, the kind of content of it. And that's, it's not a war, it's just an interesting um, engagement of, of things that sometimes are disparate and sometimes are, are, are in sync. And our job is to parse that. That's, that's, that's the great uh, glory of it. That's where you sort of feel good because you can reconcile these things it is not you know the the our addiction to the binary is in and of itself a zero-sum game but the whole notion of it in art particularly literature of course in religion and faith in sex and relationship and love is all to transcend that dialectic and to reconcile and that's what you do for a living that's what we do for a living Back, if I could, Sarah, to you with that practical question. Um, how do you go about deciding what scholars, what voices, what uh, people make up the film in addition to all of the footage and all of the rest of it, the interviews that you folks do? It's one of uh, my favorite things to do is to think long and hard with Ken and Lynn and Jeff and our our tiny little team at the beginning of a project about who has spent their life studying the subject that we're about to tackle. So that's how we go about finding the scholars that are not only often in our films, but also behind the camera. And I think that's a really important part of our process for everyone listening to really understand that when we set out to make a film about a big topic and we're known for making films about big topics, we're not experts in those topics as Ken and Lynn were both saying, and we find the people who are the famous scholars, the lesser known scholars, the graduate students, and we meet them and we spend a lot of time with them. We eat dinner with them, we hear from them, we learn from them, we ask them questions, we ask them who they know, who they think, what do, we really do rely on that, on scholars and experts at every stage of the project. Inception, scripting, editing, fact-checking, messaging, talking, thinking about, and, and then some of those scholars end up on camera and we spend a lot of time preparing to interview them. And that's very intimidating and scary because we're interviewing them about the subject they've spent their lives and careers studying. And then it's not so dissimilar when we find the personal stories, we find the people who have interesting personal stories that we think will resonate with audiences and we spend a lot of time with them. We get to know them and their families. We look at their photographs. We do research about them that they have never done. And we work with them and their families to try to make sure that the responsibility we have to tell their stories justly and to honor their experiences. Um, and, you know, we all have so many people from different films that are so special to us and I think special to the American people because they've shared their stories and their expertise. And we feel really grateful for the opportunity to work with, with them. Well, I feel, I think I can speak for thousands of people grateful for the work you three have done and honoring you here as I hope we're doing, uh, this fledgling interviewer who's been talking to you this all this time, uh, with great respect and even awe as a think appropriate word. Congratulations again on U.S. and the Holocaust, and just continue doing the amazing work that you've all been doing. Thank you so much for being with us. Our gratitude. Thank you, Thank you Michael. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wonderful Thank you. Conversation. Yeah. Thank you.
Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.